Hello and welcome back to the Master of None podcast. Uh, I am your host, Stephen Murphy. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Um, I have a special guest on the podcast tonight. It is Kieran O'Sullivan. Uh, Kieran is the head coach of the Irish American football team, also known as the Wolfhounds. Uh, Kieran, thanks very much for joining us. How are you? I'm very good, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, how's uh, how's life at the moment for you? Obviously, it's uh, strange times for everyone at the moment. How are you dealing with it? Ah, same as everybody else, you know, following the advice being given by, you know, the appropriate authorities and um, kind of part the whole sport um, side of things for, you know, the foreseeable future and um, just keeping an eye on, you know, when we can get back to normal life and get back to our hobbies, really, to be honest. I know you don't realise how much uh, sport is a part of your life until it's taken away, isn't it? It's amazing. Oh, it's absolutely true, yeah. Um I, yeah, I, I was. It's a bad sign, but I used to wake up every morning. You know, I check, you know, my Twitter or my Instagram for sport highlights. Um, and so it's probably better that I get out of that habit. But it just shows you how much a part of it is uh, your life it becomes. But uh, so, Karen, yeah, look at as I said um, to you, uh, off, off. Um, privately there i will attempt i'll take this basically as i feel like a lot of people are like myself as in uh i follow the nfl i have done for years now but uh i didn't even know ireland had a national team up until recently um so i wanted to kind of do basically a contrast of you know because when you think of the nfl you think you know bright lights and it's superstars and millionaires and obviously that's not the case when it comes to lower level and national level um so we'll talk a bit about you uh, your background and then i want to have a few questions i want to ask and actually i put up my twitter um uh, if anyone had any questions so a few questions come in so i'll run them past you as well towards the end but um i'll start with you kieran so how, how did you get into american football did you play when you were younger or um, I think pr- pretty much the same way as you just described for yourself. You know, it was a bit different uh, back in the 80s, but RTE and Channel 4 ran um, highlight shows, highlight packages of the NFL once a week. So they'd show extensive highlights of one game and then sort of, a, you know, the edited highlights of other games. And, um, you know, it was just, there wasn't that much sport on television anyway. So this was just a, an easy introduction, a very slick production and, it got a lot of people interested in the sport. And um, in the 90s, I relocated to America. And of course, um, that gave me an introduction to football at all different levels. So uh, okay. high school, college and NFL as well. You know. And whereabouts did you relocate to in America? Well, I lived in Maine um, for a time and also in Connecticut. Um, so right up in the north, kind of wintry, mountainy Maine and um, closer then to New York City, just outside sort of the extended suburbs of New York City, if you like, um, on my second trip over. And did you play when you were over there, Kieran? No. Um, it's it's one of the really bizarre things about American football um, and even a lot of other sports in America is um, the formal sports are... They're not played, like, in general. So you don't have, like, American football clubs, the way we would have GA clubs, soccer clubs or rugby clubs, that would provide an outlet for all levels of players. It's basically organised in school, high school, college, and then the NFL. And there are some semi-professional leagues that are based around sort of your different um, occupations. So you'd have like sort of fire and emergency services leagues and and things like that. And the military would have their own. But 
there isn't kind of an opportunity to play American football recreationally in, in America. So it was purely as a spectator over there. Uh, and why do you think that is, Karen? Is it just the, um, the physicality of it, or is the amount of because you know it's, uh, Gaelic, you bring a pair of boots and a pair of shorts and you can play. Obviously, that's not the case with American football. You need you know your pads, your helmets, your you know it's, it's a bit different. Well, it's it's kind of how all sport is played in America. So um, it's it's something that kind of was in in Irish schools and colleges for a while where, you know, the sport was a big part of it and it's kind of being taken out of the curriculum now. But in American um, high schools and juniors, uh, highs and so on, you have these fantastic sporting facilities and everybody has an opportunity to play sports. And it's not just American football. There would be soccer, baseball, softball, um, athletics, gymnastics, wrestling, um, you know, it's it's a big part of the education system over there, and American football started in uh, the education system. It was the Ivy League colleges took basically what was rugby and evolved it into American football. So it's never been very far away from the education system, and that's where it's set up and it's really organised. Um, it's the participation level at high school is massive. It narrows down when you get into college, and then obviously the the peak of the pyramid is the NFL. And outside of that, you don't get very much participation in uh, for for adults in in the sport. Um, you know, there there just isn't the um, structure there for it. It's strange, well, because you know American football is America's number one sport. You think that there would be, you know, I think everybody would be playing it at some stage, which is strange. Well, it gets it it's. What we'd see as their number one sport, but if you look at some of their other sports, um, so like by participation again, soccer is probably their biggest sport. Um, it's soccer is huge in in high schools and colleges. Um, we don't see it because they, you know, we we only get sort of their major league soccer, uh, which you know really hasn't taken off over here. Uh, it's just something to watch uh, when the Premier League is over or whatever. Um, but there are like their sports are, are huge and um, we would think that there would be a kind of a, a similar model that we'd have in our rugby or soccer and our um, Gaelic games that, you know, people would have an opportunity to participate. It's not really the case in a, in a lot of sports. It's, you know, obviously um, soccer and baseball and softball lend themselves to kind of summer recreation leagues and you find a good deal of participation in those. But then again, you know, the, commitment and, and time it takes to be involved in American football doesn't lend itself to a sort of recreational um, kind of hobby approach if you like yeah that makes sense that makes sense um, and when you were over there Karen then did you did you get involved uh, with a team did you start did you start your coaching there um, no I actually um, coached handball here in Ireland before I went over and uh, the sport I took to as I said I I like to I like to play sports and I already spoke about baseball and softball and they were the sports that I kind of gravitated towards um when I was over there just because you you couldn't break into American football um but there were a couple of things that were ha- that was happening so um one thing was where I lived there was a massive um rivalry there were two towns on either side of a, of a river one was Winslow and one was Waterville if it was anywhere else they'd be the one town but these two towns had a, a real rivalry between their high schools. And I mean, 
they played in the dead of winter. Um, it was seriously hard-nosed football, tough football, and it really mattered. It was as good a derby as you would find in any sport here. Um, so if you think of, you know, the bitterest um, GA rivals at club level, you know, it, it was right up there with that. And that was fantastic um, because, you know, you get a little bit homesick for that sort of um, environment. Yeah. You know, it was a bit of intensity. Intensity. And the other thing then that happened was at, at Thanksgiving, we'd get together and there was a, before like football would be a big part of Thanksgiving in the afternoon and the evenings, that's what the family would sit down and watch. And uh, there was a game played where everybody would put down uh, $5 and you'd have to call out the penalty before it was announced and you'd win the pot. And uh, so I became quite good at that. So like I learned the rules um, through, I guess, gambling. Um, I became, <laughs> and, uh, we, we don't advocate that here. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, I know it was, it was a kind of a friendly thing where it just made it a bit more interesting when there's a break in the game. You know, it's a very tough game to watch with, with all the starting. Yeah. And back then, the analysis wasn't the same as you have now. So you weren't getting in depth coaching or, um, you know, and that breakdowns in between plays. So there was plenty of time and to, to kind of. Um, make the calls and and see who who get the call right. So it was an interesting uh, an interesting education, I, I must say. Like so, that was my that was my involvement in American football in America. That's yeah, because well, you know, and watching the games here, you know, sometimes um, it's very tough to call the the penalty. So that that's actually probably is a great way to learn the rules because uh, a lot of this the small intricate stuff is what puts people off sometimes. You know, so that's actually fascinating enough. Yeah. Um, so you returned home, Karen, uh, obviously at some stage, and you set up the Cork Admirals. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, you know, I came home and um, I was involved still in softball here. And uh, one of the one of my teammates, John Stokes, playing softball. You know the, the season ends in um, the summer at the end of summer and autumn. And uh, we were just saying how good it would be to you know Thanksgiving is coming up and how good it would be to see an actual football game um, live because both of us used to attend um, games live when we were in he lived in the states as well. And um, so I, I made a phone call to. Um, again, the internet wasn't huge at the turn of the last millennium. So I, I made a phone call to the association and I asked, you know, was there, a, you know, I really want to go see a game. Is there um, any way I could get to see a game this Thanksgiving? And uh, the man at the other end of the phone basically told me, if you want to see a game, you've got to start a team. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that makes sense. The only way to see a game is to start. <laughs> so um, I went back to John and we decided that that's what we do and we, uh, set up the Cork Admirals. Um, and can can I ask what goes into setting up a team? Commitment, a massive amount of commitment. So to be fair, um, to John and I, kind of, um, as I said, we've been involved in softball, which was a minority sport. So we had a good grounding in, you know, sort of how to get publicity and how to attract players and you know what needed to be set up in insurance and the rest of it. So um, you know, we just set about and. We decided to advertise that we weren't setting up a team, but that we were just looking for players, almost like we had the team already set up. So we picked everything, the name, the colours, uh, where we were going to train, um, the whole lot. And we just put out like this advertisement that Cork Admirals are looking for players um, if you're interested in American football. And 
people came down and I think our first meeting we had nine people at it, um, which was a little bit disappointing. But we said, look, we've got a decision to make if we um, we can either say, look, this isn't working or the nine of us can work and um, push on from here. And everybody contributed and got us over the, the initial hurdles of getting more people involved, um, getting boy into the league, playing our first games, uh, getting equipment, getting, um, you know, money uh, is huge. So it was kind of like the, the nine first people made a huge difference. They all got on board with the vision that we had and um, understood where we came, that we weren't pulling the wool over anybody's eye at that point. And uh, we had something that was, you know, we felt marketable and would get people on board. And uh, that proved the case. Team is still going today. And what was the time frame from kind of starting up to actually getting a team together and, you know, actually into a league? Um, well, we would have started in um, late 2000 and we were would have been playing in 2002. So, so not, not overnight. Oh, no, no. I mean, again, just with, with everything, there comes a caveat with American football that um, it isn't soccer. It isn't even hurling. It's... Uh, very physical and potentially dangerous game. So you don't um, you don't go out and see will we like it. You kind of prepare yourself for um, you know the the actual game itself as best you can, and then you participate at a level that's suitable for everybody. So our first games would have been eight aside games with variance in the rules, um, and that that was kind of a stepping stone. And then we would have progressed on into the leagues going forward and it it took maybe um a year involved in the league before we got our first win even though we were competitive against other teams some of the best teams would just absolutely wipe the floor with us and um that's understandable they'd have been around a lot longer than us they they had bigger squads they had um been more prepared but um you know it's it's patience commitment and step-by-step approach and did you take the head coach role of the Cork Admirals at that stage? No, um, my involvement in it was um, defensive coordinator. So John and I divided up um, responsibilities because there wasn't anybody else there to do it. I coached in baseball, softball, and even coached in, in America um, and handball. And so I kind of turned towards, uh, I naturally gravitated towards defence. And um, we just got to a point where when I was coaching the defence that I was actually getting more involved in the plays myself or being on the field myself. And one of the guys who played a little before, there was a team in Cork previously that had a a short existence, but um, we had some players from there who came over in the initial nine. And uh, Chris Gawn, one of those players, just told me, you need to be in pads. You can't stay out in the sideline anymore. And um, so then it be, that's when I transitioned to being a player with um, responsibility for the defence as well. So what, what position did you play, Kieran? Uh, linebacker. Oh, were you laying in some big hits? Um, I was laying out some low hits. I'm not the tallest. Or the big, <laughs> but, um, everybody folds at the knees. They're designed to fold. Yeah. So uh, I was playing in that. Um, I was playing at that level um, on the field. So, 
yeah, it's um, it was tough. And, you know, you talk to people from that era and they call it old school. And, you know, it was it was um, the trenches and it was a very different sport back then to be involved in. So it was tough. And did you play for long, Karen? Um, I played up to 2005. Um, so that would have been my, my last game would have been in um, 2005. So it would have been what, four years, I guess. Playing. Long enough in, in American football terms. Well, long enough as well for someone in my advanced years. I mean, it didn't come to it as a as an 18-year-old. Uh, you, you saw my beard. There's plenty of grey in it. And... Um, you know, I was I was pushing on at that point and probably pushing it a little bit, but it was it was very enjoyable. I loved it. Um, I took to the game very much. Um, had a great experience with the people I played with at the time and our opponents at the time. And you know, it, it, it was fantastic and it was a great grounding and education in the sport as well. Yeah, I would just uh, before we move on, I would just like to reiterate: Kieran has a majestic beard. Um, if anyone has the uh, pleasure of meeting him, you'll see it. But uh, incredible. But sorry, I just wanted to digress into that for a second. <laughs> um, um, was it a steep learning curve then, Kieran, from going, you know, like controlling the being a defensive coordinator? Did you find it tough to, um, kind of master that? Um, I kind of gravitated towards it a lot. Um, somebody like you can't with defense, uh, you don't know what's coming. So you have to be prepared for everything and you still have to have a, a realistic approach that you can't actually prepare for everything. So you kind of find a, a nice median and I was good at organizing that. So I kind of took to it very well in the earlier, um, years of, you know, my coaching career, I would have traveled to, uh, coaching conventions in the UK and in Europe to try to pick up as much. I really took it seriously, um, educated myself as best I could. Again, there were limited resources. We didn't have the uh, the internet that's available now and we didn't have the resources and even the information being passed forward on, on Sky from all these wonderful coaches they get to analyse games. That wasn't available to us. So um, it was a case of going out and finding it. Uh, finding the information and I, I love that um, and I just took to it and I don't know I, I just have a skill set I guess that allowed me to excel at it as well so I, I started putting out some really mean mean defences and uh, that kind of got me noticed I suppose and obviously it's one thing to think up of these think of these schemes and these plays but is it easy then to translate that to your to your defence your players on the pitch If I say yes, it's going to sound arrogant, and if I say no, it's going to make <laughs> my players. Well, look, Karen. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to give yourself praise, you know. But like, I, I just found I found ways of doing it. Um, you know, some of the the other sports that I was involved in coaching, and some of the coaches that I've had would have shown me how to break things down into functioning, coachable like segments, and. You know, you try to get through as many of them as you can and build a, a stronger picture as you can with all these different segments. And, um, you know, that approach really helped. As I said, the, the tuition from um, the British American Football Coaches Association, BAFCA over there in the UK, um, you know, and some of the American coaches who travel over and do seminars was, was just fantastic. And um, so I had a lot of guidance in it on how to break it down. And, 
we weren't like even though it was a new sport to us in Cork we didn't go out and reinvent the wheel there was defences out there that we could work with and adapt and uh, other people had coached these and had installed these uh, defences and then I have to say I, I was just so lucky with the players I've worked with all through my coaching career um, they've been absolutely fantastic and it's easy to build a good rapport and the final part of the puzzle I suppose is they haven't played in, in the linebacker position in the defence you kind of get an understanding a picture of where you are on the field um, sort of what's happening in front of you what's happening behind you you're both playing run defence and you still have to be involved in the pass defence so you get an overall view and being on the field then you know in some of these older uh, old school games as well um, players understood that you knew what they were going through and that you wouldn't ask them to do anything that you haven't done yourself so yeah all those things come together and you end up with uh, a good defence at the end of it Yes, and clearly that was the case because I believe he's went on to win a Shamrock Bowl. Is that correct? Well, there was a kind of a couple of changes there. We've um, jumped ahead a little bit, so oh, sorry, sorry. It's um, it's so 2005. I played my last game for Cork, and then it was the defensive coordinator under the head coach Paul Orr, um, another great guy who was big on education, but. He, at the start of, before the start of the season, he had to leave uh, Cork for work. So I was the, um, what would you say, the part uh, or the temporary interim, interim head coach of, of the Admirals um, for the 2006 season. And that was a fantastic team. Uh, it was really competitive. And we, in that year, had our first winning season, over 500. And we beat some teams as I spoke to you about already, some teams that had, um, were out of reach earlier on uh, in in our um, early games. We were no competitive against those and, and beating some of those. So um, that was fantastic. And then they decided to look for have a sort of a, which is understandable, they wanted to, you know, approach the permanent head coach position fairly. And, they had a process and they selected somebody else to be the head coach of the team at that point. So we had a youth team at that stage. So I just worked with the youth team for 2007. And in 2000 and late 2007, I was approached by the University of Limerick, um, who just won a Shamrock Bowl against Cork to coach their defence. So I went to, I went to Limerick to coach at the University of Limerick Vikings. And in I coached their defence in 2008. We won um, a really great Shamrock Bowl. And I was the head coach in 2009. We won a Shamrock Bowl there. And in 2010, we won a European Championship. Wow. Um, yep. So we set records for defence, offence, and special teams. And um, we got to... Finals up to my, my last year there was 2012 and we lost a heartbreaking final to a great Trojans team from Belfast. And um, at that stage, then I stepped aside from club football. And that Limerick team then, obviously, to win that many years in a row and win a European uh, title, that's obviously you know a pretty special team. 
Was there anything that stuck out with that team, or was it just you know the sum of all parts was just greater than other others? Well, like Limerick, as you know, is is um, a fantastic sporting town and University of Limerick itself. I mean, Munster Rugby were training there. That's when Munster were winning Heineken Cups or European Championships as well. Um, the whole place was just alive with sport and these guys were just imbued with it. Like, they grew up with it. They grew up with rugby, hurling, um, Gaelic football. They were tough athletes. Um, they played hard. Training was really tough. They played a very physical brand of, of American football and were proud of that. Um, nobody liked to play a game in Limerick. Nobody liked to travel to Limerick to play games. Um, nobody liked it when we travelled to play them. Um, it was the type of football that I kind of watched when I lived up in Maine. You know, it was that hard nose, um, hard nose, hard hitting football. Um, I just loved it, and the guys were fantastic. We had a great um, working relationship between the whole coaching and players and senior players contributing. And um, it was like catching lightning in a bottle really for, um, for about four or five years, it was just electric and, um, you know, set down some pretty high markers for the the kids who were coming in and joining every year. One of the great things about being in the university was, there was always a fresh um, class of rookies coming in every September, every October, you know, and um, when you had a structure there to get the best out of them, some of these guys went on to be some of the best players and still are some of the best players in the country. Some of them are still on my national team. So it was fantastic. Great times in Limerick. That must be pretty um, special then to, you know, see them starting off um, as basically rookies, as you call them, and then ending up on the national team still to this day. That must be pretty special. Oh, look, there was um, there was one open day, tryout day in Limerick, and I remember I was up in a, um, there was a bar kind of coffee uh, restaurant, cafe overlooking the field. And I remember looking down and seeing a kid in a, a Larry Fitzgerald jersey. And there was no pads involved. They were just throwing a ball around. And he was catching absolutely everything. And I remember saying to one of the other coaches that I wanted Larry Fitzgerald. I didn't know his name. I didn't know who he was. Never met him before. And, um, you know, he's gone on to be, like, the best receiver, you know, in the country. He plays for me, starts for me, scored scored touchdowns for the national team at receiver uh, to this day and I still think of him as as Larry Fitzgerald um, so yeah it's it's a journey to see guys come along and um, watch watch as they develop as players and, and kind of grow up as well it's uh, it's fantastic um, yeah that sounds amazing um, we'll skip on then to, so you, you stopped uh, with University of Limerick um, we'll, we'll move on then to so how did you basically get involved with the Irish national team so 2013 was the year of the gathering. Um, Notre Dame Navy were playing a game up in the Aviva in Dublin. Um, there was a, a, a football, uh, festival of American football organised around that where high school and Division Three colleges were coming over to play games on the Friday before the big Notre Dame Navy game. Um, these would have been competitive football games in their own leagues. So somebody gave up home field advantage 
and I think there were 12 teams, six games came over, but they organised another team to come from Manitoba in Canada to play against um, a Brist- the Bristol Academy from the UK. And this Canadian team wanted a warm-up game on the Thursday before it, sorry, the Wednesday before that. Um, and they just asked our league if we could put out, a, obviously these were younger players in kind of high school age group. And they asked if we could put out a, a team, a national team to play against them. And I got a call from the head coach who was selected for that position, John Judge, asking me if I could put an offense together in three weeks. That was the lead time we had for it. So I kind of said, like, you know, it's going to be a tough ask, but um, I just said, look, yeah, I'll do it. I just need to be able to pick my own coaches. I picked a, a team of guys to coach the offense. We had, I think it was four sessions with the kids before we got to play the Canadians and um, we won. We beat the Canadians, which is the first time an Irish team and the only time an Irish team had ever beaten a North American team of any description or an overseas team for that matter. And that was kind of a, a massive impetus for the, the national programme then. And so at that stage, you were saying that you were putting together the offence. So I know you were a head coach at, at UL. Yeah. So what was your experience? Were you very much involved in the offence or did you have a certain coach that you relied on for that? Or what was no. your knowledge like of the offence at that stage? Yeah, it's a good it's good. Good question because, we, you know, uh, my transition um, to offence was um, in my last year in Limerick. Um, the offence previous to that hadn't been functioning and there were some people who moved on and graduated and so on. So I saw that as an area that needed attention and uh, we had a lot of, a, a much younger team with a lot less experience. Um, so I made a decision to go with the offense. No, before it, it sounds like I'm kind of being di- a dictator about it and pushing around. Um, every year that I was at the University of Limerick, the club rules say that you have to put yourself forward for election for the post of head coach. It's, an, it's renewed every year. So I would have had to put it to the, the team at that point, you know, that we need to freshen up the offense. And I told them the style of offense we were going to play, which was a very um, high school, college-based offense called the Flexbone. And I introduced that um, in my final year at Limerick. And it still remains the highest scoring offense in um, the league to this date. So we ran it. We had eight plays that went right and left. So 16 plays in total. Not very complicated, but very tough to defend against. And I had styled it coming at it from a defensive point of view. I knew where the weaknesses were in defences. And I decided that this was the style we needed to play and tailored it then to the Irish game. So that's kind of where it came from. And when I went into the national programme, that's the offence that I, I carried forward then. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as strange as it might have first sounded. How did a defensive guy who coached some of the best and, and meanest defences in the country end up? coaching the offense on a national team. It was a transition we made with the Vikings and uh, successfully um, we ran. Because yeah, in my research of you, it's, you know, before you became head coach, obviously the national team, you were the offensive coordinator. Yeah. So um, kind of to, in, in basic terms, obviously transitioning from an offense coordinator to a head coach, 
Um, what are what are the main differences? Obviously, you know, basic uh, the offensive coordinator decides what offenses that they run, but how much uh, how much power over that do you have as the head coach? Can you overrule, or is that not accepted? Or well, like when I was when I was bought in, so the conversation I would have had with um, the head coach, Coach Judge, would have been, um, you know, he picked me. He saw the type of offense I ran in Limerick. So it wasn't an uneducated, I wasn't all of a sudden turning around and going, oh, this is the type of offense I'm going to play. And no, it was a kind of a continuation of what I'd been doing. He liked what he saw. It suited the younger age group we were playing with under 20s. Um, you know, it's a very fast and speedy and deceptive um, type of offense that's very good against more powerful defenses. Um, so he made a, a very good and conscious decision about that. So my current um, offensive coordinator, you know, again, was selected, you know, as part of a conversation. It's, it's, it's a discussion. You know, this is what I like to see. I knew what he did. I like, I pointed out the elements of what I liked from him. And sort of, you know, once you pick somebody who you know the style of football they're going to bring, that then you know the offense they're going to bring to, to the table, then it's a case of just tailoring it for specific games or game situations, what you like to see in situations and how you would use it is where the head coach would kind of come into play a bit more. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so you, you started with the national team. Um, was it always, was this something that you wanted, Kieran? set now? Did you have a goal, like, I wanted to be involved with a national team, I wanted to be the head coach of this national team, or is this just something that kind of happens just because of how the games turn out? Well, I wanted to, if I'm, if I'm going to be completely honest, I, I really wanted to referee football, um, and I did a bit of, refereeing along the way and you know even as as a coach I'd referee in other leagues and referee other other uh, games that I wasn't involved in and so on um but I kind of became a because I wanted to see football I became a coach I was a coach in other sports and I took to it and I just loved coaching from there on so it was ne I never set out to be a football coach and then I never set out to be a head coach and I never set out to be a, a national team coach but kind of my ambition grew with my coaching career if you like you know it became the obvious next step open to me um, was to, to move on. So another obvious step that I took was to become a, a coaching tutor with Sport Ireland where I train other coaches to become coaches. I train people to be to become American football coaches as well. So they're, they're kind of just, there's a pathway there and I'm lucky enough that I've been able to follow that pathway and as um, I got up onto the next step, the step ahead of me, um, became my next ambition, if you like. Um, I suppose we'll start with the national team. So, how often, how often does the national team meet, and how often do they train? Obviously, there's a certain season. Um, so, when does that start, and kind of can you talk us through that, please? Yeah. So, the national team. Um, it depends. So, if we're in a a championship cycle, you would have more intensive training closer to the championship games. So our season here, our club season would start um, in March around St. Patrick's Day. We'd play through to the start of August at, when the Shamrock Bowl winds up everything. And the international season is generally played from the end of August uh, through to the end of October. So you could have various like friendlies or, if, as I said, if it's a championship year, you'd find it at that end of the season. So what I decided to do was... Um, with the national program was to hold 
training sessions during the season. So our, our club games are played on a Sunday. We would train on a Saturday. I would hold four or five one-day um, camps at the National Sports Campus up in Blanchardstone. And uh, that would be just like a sort of putting in, the, installing different elements of offense, defense, and special teams, while at the same time looking at a large squad. So we'd start in session one with um, maybe 70 or 80 players and um, with a view to whatever game we had or whatever games we've got, we had lined up in September, October, you know, whittling down and, and fine-tuning everything that were ready to go at the very end. So we'd get through um, these sessions. They'd be designed to be run during the season so they wouldn't impact on a player's ability to participate with his club because club football is, you know, what it's all about here, really, to be honest. And uh, so then when, we, when the Shamrock Bowl ends, by nature, we'd have a lot of people involved in that because we're picking the best players. They'd usually end up on the better teams and end up competitive in semi-finals and finals of our top division and we'd give them a, a couple of weeks break and then start running more intensive sessions in the weekends leading up to our games Can you explain sorry, what you mean by championship cycle? So there's European championships that uh, take place now everything is, is up in a heap at the moment but um, so you'd have qualifiers uh, which would have taken place last year um, we weren't entered into those because you know, we're, we're very new as an international federation. Um, so we weren't entered into those. The plan was for us to enter into the qualifiers in 2021. So their qualifiers in, let's say in 2021, would be for the championships in 2022. So it's over a kind of a two-year period that you have your qualifier and then your championship. And is there is there tiers to this, or is it all of is it all of Europe? Well, it's it's pretty much all Europe, but it is divided into two tiers. So you'd have um, you know, an A and a B um, federation, and the winner of um, the winner of B would play in the A champ would get pushed up to the A championship then the following year. So okay. if you qualify and... if you qualify at the top of A, or sorry, the top of B, then you move up to we would be in the we would be entering the B tier. Um, and we'd be competitive at that level. And who are the who are the big boys in the A division? Who are the best teams? Oh, look, you've got teams from like Great Britain. Um, the Italians always had a strong team, but you've got Germany. You've got the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Poland were really strong for a while. You know, um, as I said, Scandinavia is a massive American football culture up there, and uh, Germany as well. So, I mean, Germany, like, I don't know if you can remember, but there was an NFL Europe for a time and that all ended up, it was for a while spread around Spain, um, Holland, UK, with Scotland and London. And it all ended up going back into a, a kind of a German-based league for, for a while, for a couple of years. So Germany's got a massive following and, and you know, they will be at a completely different level altogether to most teams in Europe. And when you say a different level, so is that physicality? Is it is it uh, play calling? Is it just knowledge of the game? What, like what separates them? Well, it's it's kind of infrastructure starts with the infrastructure and works up. So um, they would have professional coaches. They would not that I professional just because you're getting paid for something doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. But 
um, they would have professional structures that these people would be able to dedicate time. They'd have professional players uh, playing for them. So we're dealing with, um, you know, people on the Irish national team or people on Irish club teams would have jobs as well as football and families as well as football. But when you're getting paid to do something and it's your number one commitment, um, you know, it leaves you a lot more time to work out intricacies. Um, they can control kind of fitness levels. They can deal with injuries. You know, it's basically football at a at a professional level, um, you know, which when it comes to the international game, then they're, they've got that um, foundation across Germany, the GFL, that they can, they can put out really strong, really, really strong uh, national teams. Very good. Uh, and who who is the the countries that would be in the B conference with yourselves? Well, we'd have um, sort of Israel are, are there, uh, Spain, Belgium, Holland. Um, you know, it varies. Some of the you know uh, people kind of move between between the two groups. Uh, Hungary. So yeah, it's it's they're not small federations, and they're no by no means inferior. Um, one of the things you have to remember by when you get to the international thing is it's kind of, you know, the color of your jersey is is not dictated by uh, money or anything else. You you play for your country. So, um, you know, Germans are just fortunate that they've got a fantastic infrastructure in their country and we're all working up to try to get to that level. Um, so these, they would have, there would be players in all those countries and all those national teams including ours that will play in um, German and Scandinavian leagues professionally. Irish born players, Irish players with Irish passports getting played to play American football. It's fantastic. Yep, this it sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Um the obviously the, the travel involved with all this and you know, this it's not cheap. So how how is this is the team uh, how is the team funded? Is it mainly sponsors? Is it how how does how does that work? Well, our general manager, um, Alan Orr, so he's probably sponsored by um, some ulcer medication or something because it's it, he basically takes that headache on board. And we've got a commercial director in the association um, as well, and they'd be responsible for getting sort of the best prices, um, you know, getting the finances, and of course. The association, uh, American Football Ireland, are are fantastic in their support of this program. So, which we make it, you know, cost neutral for the players um, traveling, and that's not easy to do when your squad size is forty five players, and you know between twelve and fifteen coaches, and then a back room of about three or four people as well. So. When we travel, it's it's kind of like a small army um, taken off, and uh, all the equipment as well that goes with it. Um, so all those shoulder pads and helmets and so on, they all have to go too. And it's a uh, it's quite a sight to see it in action, but the logistics of it is um, is serious, and the cost of it. We've been lucky to have uh, great sponsors and great support from the likes of Ryanair and Clon Hospitality, um, you know, and other sponsors who help out in any way they can. But that's not an easy market to be in. A lot of people are vying for sponsorship and partnership and support. Um, we're just lucky with the people we have who track this down for us and, and keep us on 
the road. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just wanted to bring it back to for a second. The 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 training squad of you know seventy or eighty players. How is that picked? Do you go around and watch games? Is it uh, do teams nominate certain players that they think should go up, or how has that worked? Well, our coaches, as I said, we've got a big coaching staff, so they'd be either involved in teams themselves, club teams, so they'd be getting to to their games, seeing opponents, seeing players on their own team. Um, I get to as many games as I can um, every weekend, basically, in season. I'm, I'm on the road, uh, taking notes, looking for people. Um, these guys basically select themselves by their performance with their club. And it doesn't matter what club they're with. You you can see quality players, they stand out. And, you know, it's getting tougher now because people are getting more athletic and... and they're getting more educated and the level of coaching in the clubs is improving. But we're still looking for, as, as that standard, general standard rises, we're looking for the person who puts their head above that um, high watermark again and, and pushes the barrier again. So that's, that's our primary way of finding people. We just ran a combine um, in Dublin before all of this um, shutdown took place where we allowed people to actually just come forward, put them register, show up and get scientifically measured in some, you know, the, the same measurements we did use in NFL combines and so on. Scientific measurement of um, your 40, your 10 split, uh, vertical, horizontal, so on. And um, the plan with that is to take those guys. We also measured some of the current squad and if any of the guys who aren't with us at the moment exceeded the current squad numbers, we would then look for footage from them. Um, that's how most selections are made across Europe would be um, people get highlight reels together. There's an awful lot of filming of games. And um, so the initial thing would be, are they fit enough? Then we'll have a look at their footage and then we'll have a look at when we get back to business, we'll have a look at them in action with their teams and speak to their coaches and hopefully add some new talent, some new blood to our team. We've been doing it anyway. We played um, games in the autumn of 2018 and another game in 2019. Between those two games, we had 23 new players on the field. So that was a turnover of over half the players, uh, half the squad had changed. So we're constantly looking for the guys who just push boundaries and, and excel, you know? Yeah, and it's it's a good problem to have if the, the the base level keeps getting higher and higher. It's um it's a it's a nice for you to have that issue. Um, I will start with a few questions. Oh, sorry, one more question before I get into the the Twitter questions. The, the squad you have is it mostly Irish like Irish players, or is there a lot of uh, kind of foreign born players that you know have come over and uh, are are on the team? Mostly Irish born players, so. Um, there's no exclusion. It's just that how it works. That's how it works out. We um, we do have some players who would have been born elsewhere and played here. We've um, very few players who would um, come to a sort of because they're active in Europe and qualify for sort of the the Jack Charlton grandmother rule or whatever. Um, we we wouldn't have that. Like most of the guys in our squad would have played with clubs in Ireland 
Um, it's not exclusive, but you know they know what football is like, and and are kind of uh, we are an island after all. And it's 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 not like uh, let's say in Europe where you know it's very easy for a guy from Belgium to play for a French or German team. They can move around very easily, so we don't get that sort of movement that you'd see in Europe. Um, but yeah, it's primarily homegrown talent. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's always good to hear. Um, right, we'll start with some of the questions from Twitter. So one of them was, like, how do you devise trainings? Is there support and coaching supplied from the NFL? And also, do you take any aspects from other sports and include that in your training? Yeah, so as I said, um, we are part of uh, Sport Ireland. So all of our coaches would have been uh, put through Coach Ireland um, approved training courses. So they, um, you know, they they kind of evolved our coaching and, and were impacted highly by other sports. Um, but again, coaching in American football, this is where, again, I'm going to sound a bit arrogant, but the stuff that coaches are doing now in rugby and in Gaelic games and, just, you know, things that are calling innovations by Jim Gavin or Joe Smith, these things were being done in the 50s and 60s in America. So we're getting used now to seeing our coaches with uh, screens in front of them, with headphones, with um, video footage, breaking down video for their players. Even at club level, we're seeing it now in other codes. That was happening at all levels of football in the States in the 1950s and 60s. So by nature... American football has probably impacted how other sports train more than any other sport. It's given structures, um, how training happens, and we do take. Um, but at the same time, we're not in a position to exclude anything else. So some of the new tackling techniques that have come in in relation to concussion and injury and so on have come from rugby. So we've borrowed from rugby, um, which is almost like... a a sister sport of ours anyway um, you know and then you you would look at how other people train as I said when I was in University of Limerick there was so much going on with athletics with rugby down there the GEA training all in these big complexes and you'd always be looking for ideas and looking for inspiration from other uh, codes and other coaches Yeah it's great to hear that you know a lot, a lot of coaches can be quite pig-headed and believe that their way is the only way. So it's great to hear, you know, the national coach of a sport always open to suggestions and always looking for better ways to do stuff. So that's always positive to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another one here is, how has the game progressed since you've been involved? So from your early days at the Cork Admirals to now, what has been the biggest change you've seen? Probably, um, I, I've mentioned it already, the... We're not getting players anymore. We're getting athletes. Um, everybody's into a gym culture. That would have been the exception, sort of at our level of the sport, um, when I was playing. So, you know, you could spot the guys who went to the gym. Um, no, it's completely the opposite. You can spot the guys who don't go to the gym. Um, fitness, diet, um, it's all improved. The players were getting no would be competitive on other teams for other sports. You know, they'd be of a higher level. They're, it's an option for people now to play American football. So 
when the Admirals came in, they were the fourth club team in Ireland. So they were the fourth club team playing American football in Ireland at that time. We have 24 now all over the island. So there's been massive changes. And, uh, but the, you know, the one that I, I love is just, um, you know, our athletes are stacking up against athletes in other sports at the top level. And also, as I said, they can go and play in Europe. They can they stack up against European and, and American athletes of the same age. They look after themselves. They love the game, and it's just fantastic to see. Yeah, another, just to touch on that, so is the knowledge of the sport getting better as well from the players who are starting? You know, I'd imagine back when the Cork Admiral days, there was players coming to you that didn't know much about the game, they didn't know much about the rules. Has that changed? Are people coming now much, much more informed about the sport? Absolutely. So, um, think about this, that we had, we would have had players, and this would have been common for a lot of um, club teams in Ireland at the time. We would have players who the first American football game they'd seen was a game they were playing in. <laughs> yeah, that's true, Yeah. <laughs> That wasn't, uh, that wasn't unusual. So, um, you know, there was just at that time we were lucky. Um, it was really taking off. The Sky Sports coverage was getting there. Madden was taking off as a platform. Uh, the internet, the availability of uh, ESPN online and uh, Game Pass packages and so on and um, all these fantastic documentaries. So, you know, if you want to, you can... Um, you can just log onto a website and see how Ohio State trained their offensive line, how what defensive backs are doing for Green Bay in the off season, how they prepare. And um, the guys who were into football, they eat that stuff up. They love it. So they're coming to us. And what it does to us as coaches is it drives us on because we have to satisfy that expectation. So they're coming to us with an expectation and they see, um, you know, how technically people are being coached and we have to be providing them with that level of, of training. So we have to push ourselves as coaches then. Do you, do you ever wonder about, you know, if you started, you know, if you were 21 years old now and you started in your coaching career, do you ever wonder about, you know, maybe, you know, how would that be different from when you started back in the eighties or nineties? Well, if I was 21, Stephen, I'd be focusing on my playing career and getting the big bucks. You would just, well, that's true. Yeah, true. Really earlier. Um, yeah, no, like, um, you know, it's it's exciting for coaches now. Um, it is very exciting for coaches now. There's a, um, you know, what we've done with the national program has, has put Irish football on the map in Europe for, for the first time. Um, so, you know, we have coaches and players who are, you know, being courted by teams from across Europe. Um, I was lucky enough to be offered a couple of coaching positions in my time, but um, having travelled already when I was younger, I wasn't kind of keen to uproot, as you say, if I was 21 and offered a coaching job, yeah, I'd probably snap, snap your hand off. But you have to understand what a coaching job entails in, in American football. It's not... Um, it's not as glamorous as, as it sounds you start at the very bottom of a hierarchy you're reliant on the people above you to keep your job so if the head coach goes the coaching staff pretty much goes if the offensive coordinator goes and you're working under him 
the offensive staff generally tends to go. So it's a it's it's a fickle job to have, and the commitment levels. If you know you'd be working two and three a days in colleges or pro teams, and if there's a meeting at um, you know seven o'clock, you're in the building at five thirty setting it up. So, and you're the last person to leave, and you're breaking down footage. It's it's really is uh, an intensive profession, and I've seen it firsthand. And you know the work, the finished product that you'll be familiar with in the NFL. Um, if you were to break down the number of coaching hours that goes into the the simplest looking play, kicking a field goal, even uh, you know something that happens after every touchdown that we take for for granted. If you see the amount of coaching work that would go into that, uh, the hours and hours and hours every week, not just at the start of the season, um, it's intense. It's absolutely intense. And uh, not many people are up for that challenge, if you like. And you definitely have to be younger than me coming into it. Um, so you'd see where somebody, maybe from uh, a college player who'd graduate, might move into uh, coaching, as you said, in in that kind of 21, 22 age group, and then work your way up through the, the ranks um, over, a, it's a long, hard slog. And it does pay off for some people, but for an awful lot more, it just continues to be a long, hard slog. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure sometimes it can, it can feel like a thankless job, all right? <laughs> Especially in the older days when it wasn't as popular. No, yeah. Um, and everybody wants to shoot you down. And that's the other thing about all the... Uh, uh, probably the downside of all the media know is that um, there's an awful lot more opinions out there. And, um, you know, there's a queue of people. We see it in all sports where, uh, you know, the analysis gets kind of very critical, if you like. And uh, you'll be, every little detail is picked over, you know. Do you, but that's So have you seen any media coverage of people like who don't know much about the sport? I'm sure that you've come across that where someone... Uh, who's just covering the sport has been given this task to cover, you know, American football. Maybe for some media outlet that isn't used to it. Have you come across some some r- ridiculous statements? Um, not particularly. It's 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 more like uh, they're kind of reporting as consumers instead of journalists. You know, yeah, and you will see that from time to time. So you see people who would have an understanding of um, the game as it's as it's fed to us uh, as we see it. Um, just as a, you know, a civilian, if you like, watching, you know, on, on a Sunday evening, and and they're kind of feeding back on that. But if you compare that um, to the people who take the time to go to practices, to talk to coaches, to talk, find out what's happening in organisations, um, there's a huge difference. And I think the American football game and American sports are different in that these journalists get embedded in the sport, and we don't see that in in Irish or English or European sports so much. You know, so um, GA inter-county teams are pretty much closed shops with very little access uh, to the outside. But, you know, after big games, you will see journalists in the locker rooms in the NFL. You know, it's, it's, it's a different thing. And it's very hard for European journalists to kind of bridge that gap and to give that level of coverage, to be fair, as well. You know, the, these guys are um, they're at practices. They're on the phone to coaches. They're on the phone to players, agents. um you know, they're, they're getting really deep into the workings of these clubs and uh, we don't see that level of, of coverage and it's starting to creep into the um, the premiership maybe with a lot of people talking about agents now becoming a, a factor in covering premiership games. That was never there before. Um, 
But in the American game, it's all about that. You know, in the in the NFL, it's it's the press are right in there. It's a product. Um, it's part of the rules of the game that the press have access, and uh, you can see the difference in the level of coverage that you know these sports get compared to our own sports here in Ireland or, as I said, soccer across Europe. Yeah, and you know, media can be good and can be bad, but there's no denying that it helps get your product out there to you know more people. Um, you know, people, you know, you don't have to necessarily agree what they're saying. Uh, but still, it's it's a some some would call it a necessary evil, you know. Well, if you if you saw what um you know our own experience here in Ireland, what um you know Johnny Giles and Eamon Dunphy bought uh, soccer analysis, um you know that kind of did catapult it and was part of the general growth of sort of the national team, um you know, and even European football before we got the Sky Access and so on. So I mean, yeah, it's 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 starting off here, but again, um, you know, the level of controversy can be fairly high, and it can be hard to take, I guess, when you're on the inside. But it's it's part of the game, now, and and you have to under, as you say, the benefits of of being talked about as opposed to not being talked about at all. Um, that weighs heavily on everybody's mind. I'd, you know, everybody'd rather be somewhere than. Uh, in a report, in a paper, on TV, or on social media, then just being ignored. Yeah, well, as the old saying goes, there's no such thing as bad publicity. At the end of the day, um, yeah. So we've been talking obviously about the higher, the higher leagues and the higher levels of the sport in Ireland. Uh, just touching on the lower levels because um, in Galway here, obviously the Galway Warriors play, and I went to one of their games last year, and I was. Uh, shocked by the amount of organisation that goes into the games, you know, again, me just being quite naive, I just showed up expecting, you know, just a game of football to be, you know, participating, but, you know, there's an ambulance um, there ready to go if necessary, you have to get referees in from other teams to come and play, you know, referee the game, uh, and I've, uh, one of the, my regular guests on the podcast here, Sam, used to pl- play with them last year, or the last couple of years, but the Galway team this year now it uh, doesn't look like they have enough numbers um to participate, so the the DVA league that kind of got you know had a brief existence in Ireland, which is what you touched on earlier on, which is kind of like the eight v eight. Yeah. Um. Do you think that's do you think that's a good format for maybe lower league teams that you know can build it up maybe and then progress on to, you know more maybe full full teams. Well, I got to be honest. Like um, I was the development officer who created the DVA league. So, um, That's a good seg- good segue. So, yeah, not a bad segue, not a, not a bad point. Look, I, I just think, um, if we use American language, I, I just think there are markets here, um, that can't support, um, an 11 side team. And I know you're only talking about three players, but, um, that multiplies out, you know, when you're looking at, uh, the different types of players that are required for the eight side game. So, you don't need as many offensive linemen, you don't need as, you know, it, it, it kind of does suit the smaller markets a lot more um, I would have liked to have seen the DV8s kept on for sort of um, rural areas if you like and I, I'm not calling Galway City you know small by any standards but just the market isn't there for, for the game at the moment in the 11 side format and um, I, I've always been an advocate of the 8 side game it's literally it was designed at the time to bring um, 
newer clubs like we were when we were the admirals ourselves and it was based on my experience you know how do we make it easier for clubs to to get a foothold in the community and you need games and you know if you're waiting to get you know a 30 odd man roster so you can play an 11 aside game then you're you know you might be waiting two or three years with no competition or no meaningful competition um and that allowed that but i like some other federations across europe have taken it on board as as a format for either your youth football or as i said for rural smaller towns and um it's, they're still operating with it and i think it's something we need to look at here um you know if we're going to break into um definitely into connacht and you know realistically into parts of munster um it'd be very hard for somebody to start a team at the moment in Kerry. Um, you know, there isn't a history of a team there and they would need that sort of buffer zone of eight side football. And they might end up playing eight side football for a long time. And it's an exciting format as well. It's a good format um to watch. You know, it's it's there's a lot more action in it and uh, uh it's enjoyable, you know, it's a good product. Yeah. Yeah, well a good example of it is in women's, you know, Gaelic football there, they went to nine aside um, for teams, you know, you know, a lot of towns wouldn't have full, you know, numbers for a women's football team, so they yeah. dropped it down to nine aside, and teams can then participate, and then, you know, nothing attracts, you know, people who are on the fence about joining a team like a team that's playing regularly and winning. So I think, yeah, like you said, even if you got an eight eight aside team here, you know, going in Galway, it'll attract more people because if it's you know, no one wants to just train and don't want to play games. Everybody wants to play games. At the end of the day, that's the whole point. And we, so I think, yeah, you're right. we train an awful lot for the, the games that we do play. So we'd train, um, our, our clubs would train. We they, The league season is eight games. But we would, you know, they'd be in training from um, October right through to the end of the season, if it's June, July or August. Um, and, and two and three times a week. So that's an awful lot of training for, you know, training to game ratio is, is uh, necessarily, I mean, I'm not complaining about it. So if, you, if you're training like that and you're not playing any games, uh, that's really tough. And then it's hard to get a, a foothold in the community, as I said. So, um, you know, the Warriors, you know, they've been working really hard over, jeez, uh, I don't know how many years now, six, seven years maybe, and uh, longer even. And, you know, just establishing that uh, foothold is really tough up there. And again, like Limerick, it's got a great sporting tradition. And you, you know, you've got your Connick Rugby, um, you know, the GA is fantastic up there. There's no reason why you shouldn't have a football team, an American football team for sure, but um, maybe, you know, revisiting the format again. And uh, as I said, there are other clubs out there who'd either be starting off clubs or clubs who should be probably eight aside, depending on their location. You know, it's it's an easier format and it's uh, I, I'd love to see football up in Galway again. Do you think, uh, you make a point there about, you know, Kerry and there's no real football down there in Galway. You know, these are, you mentioned two massive GA counties and obviously with Connacht Rugby as well based in Galway. Do you think that that doesn't help either? You know what I mean? You, you have, you know, Kerry obviously is GA. That's, that's king down there. It's tough probably to get players to stop playing those sports and come over. Have you, have you experienced much of that in your coaching career where, you know, you, you have players and you want them, but they just won't give up maybe Gaelic, whether it be soccer or rugby. No, I think I think as I said, football is becoming a real a real option, but it's got to be um, it's got to be on the menu. I mean, you can't turn around to a kid in uh, in Kerry and say, "Look, uh, 
who wants to play American football and say, look, that's great, but you've got to travel up to Cork or Limerick to play your games. You know, um, there, there are guys out there, but it's kind of a horse and cart or chicken and egg scenario, you know, which comes first, the team or uh, the interest in it. And, um, you know, the guys you want to be recruiting into the team aren't the guys who should necessarily be starting the team. Uh, you want old guys like me to set up a team and, and, and run it for you. Um, but the driver for that is, is generally coming from player age group who are sort of in the late teens, early 20s. They want to play American football. They might necessarily have the skill set or, or, you know, that be driven to uh, set up a team and set up coaching and so on. It's tough. But again, if you... If you uh, as a development officer for the um, the association, like when in my time, you know it was about tailoring a product to those areas and and, and trying to expand it out, push it out, uh, and make it workable for them. So the eight aside format didn't require goalposts because there was no special teams, there was no kicking in the game, so it was pure offense versus defense, and um, you know that that opened up a whole bunch of venues and you know. GA clubs and soccer clubs and rugby clubs were willing to give um, areas that they would consider their training areas. It was a smaller pitch, required less marking. Um, Travelling, you required a smaller bus to be practical about it. Um, you know, it just made it more, it made it workable. And I think areas, like looking at people coming from other codes, we've had that. So we'd have had people involved in, you know, inter-county teams, we'd have had people involved in uh, sort of rugby academies and so on who come to our sport as well. It's just about giving them the option, a realistic option to get into a setup that, as you say, gives them their games, gives them a purpose for the training and uh, allows them to play a sport that they, they've seen on television and are really taken by it. Like. Yeah, no, that's some good points. Um, right, second last question, Kieran. So, uh, where do you see the sport going in the next few years? Obviously, you know it's it's come on leaps and bounds in the next, the last couple of years. So, you know, in five years' time, what's the goal personally? Obviously, with the Irish team, and then where do you also see the sport in Ireland? Where do you see it continuing to grow? Okay, so you know, personally, um, obviously, getting into the eventually getting into the A group for qualifying in, in Europe uh, would be a goal. So, you know, I, I spoke about steps on the way to that and, you know, the step on is to get into our first qualifying group and to be successful and to push on, to build on the foundation we've laid. So sort of that's where I see the Wolfhounds going. Um, the growth that we've had in the programme, the growth that we've had in the player group, the commitment level that we have and our reputation and the type of football we play in Ireland lends itself to that being a realistic objective. Um, we're very much known as one of the most physical teams you will encounter. You know, when, when you get a reputation like that in a physical sport, um, that's something you can build on. That that, that reputation is not given out lightly. Um, so that's that's where I see us going as, as a, a program, the Wolfhounds, um, you know, just getting bigger and better and, and and imposing ourselves on other people as much as we can. Where I see the sport going, a um, couple of places I'd like to see it going, as I said, you know, there are, there are massive opportunities. There's so many great sporting counties up there. 
and communities out there um, that as, as the game is growing and on our media and our access to it is growing, there's an obvious market there. So I, I would like to see um, a rural or a native site uh, set up for developing new teams and also, you know, it doesn't necessarily just have to be a stepping stone. It can actually be a level of competitive football for some communities, um, which, you know, I don't see a way of getting, um, let's say, a tongue like Tralee or Killarney realistically putting out, you know, a 40-man roster of American football players to be competitive in an 11-a-side game. That's not realistic to me. Eight-a-side would be. Um, yeah, there. That's and the other area, um, which is a huge one for me, is women in sport. Um, I think other sports are coming on in leaps and bounds uh, in terms of women in sport. And we have our the president of AFI is uh, Orla McAleese, a uh, fantastic president. She was a general manager with the uh, national team before that. Um, we've got some fantastic uh, officials. We've got coaches, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's getting there now that, you know, we should have um, a platform for women who want to play American football. Um, it's, there's definitely an interest, but hopefully we'd be able to drive that interest at some level. And it would take um, imagination and it would take uh, innovation to make it happen initially and to get maybe the people who are interested you're not going to get strongholds of them big enough to set up individual teams all over the country. But in the UK, they did a very interesting thing where they were able to bring um, joint training sessions in different locations. And then um, all the players would come together and be divided into teams to play uh, blitzes to start with. And uh, I mean, that's after pushing on and they're after building a national team out of it. Um, and that's somewhere we need to go as a, as a federation. And it's somewhere... We need to go as a sport as well, to be honest. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you make some good points there, Kieran. Um, again, like you say, there's a, if there's interest, I suppose that's a great start. But there needs to be, you know, an outlet for it as well. So, um, yep. hopefully, that that happens in the next few years. Um, a final question then, Kieran. So obviously, this come in from Twitter as well. How do we continue then as as supporters of the sport? Um, and fans of the sport, how do we how do we continue to grow the game in Ireland? What's the best steps for us? Well, like uh, the American Football um, Ireland Facebook page, or um, you know the you know the website itself is probably the best thing. And um, I don't, you've been to a game, so one of the things that you'll notice it, it's the same when whenever we get a, visitors to Ireland, and you take them to a hurling game, for instance. You know, it doesn't matter what level the hurling game is. Um, you definitely get a sense of the physicality and, and, and the contest and competitiveness of it uh, being on the sideline of any hurling match. And it's the same with American football. Um, everything looks so clinical and clean in the very shiny American stadiums. And uh, these athletes, you know, you know, if you stand on the sideline of a, of a game and you somebody's tackled within, um, you know, five metres of you, uh, you you actually feel it you know you can the noises of the game like the noises of a hurling match are are amazing it's contact everywhere it's helmets clashing it's um you know it's like its own little battle happening you know it's uh, it's an immersive experience so it's one of the things we don't do well here um 
across the board, I'd say, we don't get out to watch enough local sports. And um, if anybody has an opportunity to travel to one of our, our league games, um, I'd highly recommend it. And uh, on that note, Kieran, where yeah, where are the where are the home games for Ireland actually? Uh, Navin, played? we play in Navin at present, so um, that's 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 our home ground. Now uh, we are in talks with other grounds, and our, as I said, our general manager is always looking for opportunities. So it's Navin Rugby Club would be our home ground at present. Um, you know that kind of suits us logistically, and and it keeps us to a level. But if you ask the people who travel to, to watch us play there. Um, it's a fantastic experience for everybody except the visiting team um, and visiting fans. It, it's it's just to be. I I'm even getting excited, and it's a pity no, I can't go watch a game this weekend. Um, but one of the things I love about you know my excuse to go and see games is to be the coach of the national team. So you know I, I can justify jumping in a car at five o'clock in the morning and driving up to Belfast or I can justify driving up to, to Dublin or to Limerick to watch a game um, of a Sunday and my whole day is, you know, revolves around it. Um, but just standing on, on the sideline and, and experiencing it firsthand. Um, it's, imagine if the only hurling game you ever saw was on television. That'd be a very clinical experience. And for a lot of American football fans here in Europe, the only games they see are on television. And, it's it's a million miles away from their experience of other sports. So what I say is, look, get in touch with the game at its ra- grassroots level, and and go out there and see the game, and and you know see what it's like, um, you know, and talk to the players. It's we're a very open uh, community and a very uh, welcoming community, and you know anybody who shows an interest, you know, if you want to see what it's like to throw on a pair of shoulder pads and. You know, people aren't precious about that. You, you, you know, you'll be welcome to any game. Yeah, I hope you're getting mileage for that trip up to Belfast. That's a long L haul for you, but um, uh, yeah, no, that's <laughs> you made some great, you made some, you made some great points there, Karen. Actually, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I myself now, I, I definitely want to get out to an Ireland game. Hopefully, when whenever they start up again um because mm-hmm. as i said i've been to a, a warriors game but um to go see a, a national game i think is is definitely on my to-do list for maybe it'll probably be next year at this stage will it Kieran, or are you hoping by the end of the year look uh, uh the situation we're in at the moment and like i'm being honest about it um i'm just hoping that we come out at the other end of the experience that we're having at the moment um, you know, healthy and, and well and um, whatever, you know, whatever the sports organisations have to do to reorganise, that'll all be done. It's not a priority. Um, I'm not even thinking about it. I just know that when the time comes, you know, we'll have the, the players and the coaches to take on whatever challenges um, face us. But our, our big challenge now is a million miles away from uh, the joy of a, of a sports field. And that's for everybody involved in sport and every sport. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're just miles away from that and thinking about it. Um, it's, it's lovely to talk to you about, about the game and to get excited about the games and get enthusiastic. And, um, you know, we've got to hold on to that enthusiasm and, and, and use it when the time is right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the moment, play some Madden and then that's probably the next best thing. Um, 
yeah, I think as you said, the best thing to do is uh, go find the Facebook page, you know, uh, yeah. look at websites for teams and you'll see updates from then when, you know, hopefully um, in the in the near future or whenever it happens, games will be um, kicking off again. So, uh, Kieran, that's for Sorry, go ahead. Can I just say, just an easy search to put in is, is, is Shamrock Bowl, uh, Shamrock Bowl finals. And you'll find games, you know, these finals on YouTube going back to, you know, back when I was coaching and, and you'll see footage there. And, um, you know, it might be a fun way for somebody to, you know, to pass a, a couple of hours of the uh, interminable isolation we're all going through. So, you know, they're, you know, just get onto YouTube. There are games out there on YouTube that you can watch. Um, at our level, there are the national team games will be out there. If you Google Wolfhounds and put it in there, you'll find um, national games for other federations and other teams and you know there's a whole world of sport out there you know of, of American football and you know just a couple of Google searches will put you on the right path yeah exactly um, Kieran, thank you very much for this uh, I appreciate it I think this has been very informative to anyone that's listening um, who might be on the fence about the sport and might not because it can be quite a daunting sport to get into brand new so I think um, what you said this evening has really helped with that so again thank you very much for um, joining me this evening is there anything that you want to do you have any socials you want to plug here and I, I don't think you're on Twitter I was trying to find you but I don't no, think you're no, there are you? Um, you know just Google Irish Wolf Homes um, you'll get to our uh, Facebook pages our website um, American Football Ireland um, you know we've got our own Facebook page as well social media um, spin-offs from that you know we're across, across a, a lot of platforms um, you know it's it's uh, the information is out there and you know if anybody um, wants to get a hold of me just on the American Football uh, Ireland website or on uh, the Wolfhounds website you know there's a um, web um, messaging there and you know I'm always you know always uh, willing to answer questions or if somebody has any questions or needs information um, sure you know just give us a shout yeah I can vouch for that because I actually sent an email um, re with regards to information about you here on my research so uh, I'd like to thank uh, Paul McKillop who uh, responded promptly with some great information on the email so again thank you Paul uh, that was great information that I got on you. Um, so, Karen, yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate the time. And um, hopefully I'll see you at a game in the near future. I'm looking forward to it, Stephen. Thank you. T thanks, Karen. Bye-bye. Bye now.